Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very special podcast episode. My name is Benedict Rhodes, and I'm a fourth-year journalism student at Humber College in Toronto. Over the past several months, I've been working on my thesis project, which is a long-form piece of journalism within the accompanying podcast, which is what you're watching right now. Over these past several months, I've been speaking to some of the top athletes, stakeholders, and changemakers in Canadian sports, learning about the legacy of the Vancouver 2010 Winter Olympics and Paralympics, the Toronto 2015 Pan Am Games and Parapan Am Games, as well as the potential 2030 bid to bring the Winter Olympics and Paralympics back to Canada. Legacy can be many different things, of course, both physically and culturally. Yes, things were built like stadiums and facilities to host the games, but there's also a legacy left behind after a major sporting event like that, which can't be measured in dollar figures or in square feet. Sports, of course, can bring people together like few other things can. Joining me on this podcast to relive Vancouver 2010 specifically and talk about the past, present, and future of Canadian elite sports is one of the greatest sports writers this country has ever seen, Mr. Stephen Brunt of Sportsnet. As people who know him well know, and, and as I find out over the next half an hour or so, he's some fantastic stories to tell, and I really hope you enjoy this podcast episode. Very excited now to be joined by one of the greatest Canadian sports writers ever, and someone who is integral to telling the stories of Vancouver 2010 and of our Canadian athletes and I'm, of course, talking about Stephen Brunt of Sportsnet. Uh, Stephen, this is a real pleasure. Uh, how are you, first of all? And thank you for taking the time. I'm great. I'm great, Benedict. Happy, happy to be here. Happy to be doing this. Uh, I guess before we talk about the 2010 games themselves, I uh, need to mention, you know, maybe how they came about. Like, British Columbia for a long time had been, you know, a potential host region for the games, but had fallen short on, on a couple of occasions for, for whatever reason. Uh, but that all, that all changed in, in 2003 when, when Canada had been awarded the games. Uh, by a pretty small margin as well. Uh, what do you remember about Canada being awarded the games, and and how do you maybe remember how Canadians reacted to that news? Um, I, you know, I don't remember the bidding process that much, to be honest. Um, but um, you know, I, like I think, I think since Calgary '88, you know, there had been, which you know was a successful games in a lot of ways, not necessarily in terms of the you know Canada winning gold medals, but was successful financially because. Um, because of the TV rights deal jumped that year tremendously. So it was a bit of a bonanza. Plus, you know, had it had um the facilities, you know, had paid off in terms of especially the oval. Um uh, you know, that the, there had been a a bit of a reward, you know, a bonus for for people outside of those games. So I think they were remembered very positively by and large. Now, you know, again, some of the facilities haven't didn't get used much any of the the ski jump was never really used again. But um, in, in general, I think there was a sense that the legacy of Calgary was a positive one, both financially and otherwise, and it kind of erased the memory of Montreal 76, which was obviously a huge smoking disaster financially. And then in between, you'd had the two Toronto summer bids that both failed uh, and that generated a tremendous degree of cynicism about the IOC and about the process, because you know that was at the height. Again, I'm not saying that they're not corrupt. They, they were corrupt later, but that was right at the height of the kind of the, the corruption and the broad in the bidding process, and all of those stories about you know IOC delegates showing up in Toronto and you know uh, looking for all kinds of different favors to be done, while at the same time it appearing that absolutely that the fix was in on those bids that that Toronto had no chance to win anyway that they were being played for suckers, so you had the happy memory of Calgary, you had a bit of a sour taste of that. But I guess what I remember most about Vancouver and leading, and again, this kind of is leading up to the games is, um, yeah, you know, there was, I think there was a degree of ambivalence, certainly. Um, like, obviously, it had achieved enough public support uh, and political support that the bid was carried forward and they eventually won. 
and people there were some side benefits from those from that bid that had nothing to do really with the olympics but it was a way to get them funded the the sea to sky highway um and the sky train to the airport so there was this kind of tangible well at least we're going to get this uh but yeah there was there was this uh, there was a pretty it's you know still a pretty heated debate i think in the time between when the bid was won and when the games took place about whether it was worth it about whether the disruption was worth it about dealing with the ioc and whether that was a good thing um you know that's healthy that's uh, that's a healthy thing but you know that was that was certainly in the air in that entire period leading up to you know for that that entire seven-year period leading up to the games yeah you mentioned things like like the sea to sky highway and the and the train and and also other things were sort of created in the, the pre-2010 buildup, like the on the podium program, for example. Yep. Um, how important are our sort of legacy product projects to hosting a successful 2010 operation and maybe how have they affected and, and impacted Canadian sports since then as well? Well, the, the, you know, in terms of the, like the kind of physical legacy stuff, like the, the highway and the, and the sky train, it, you know, it's just kind of real politic, right? That sometimes you need the excuse to get those things. You say, well, why didn't we just build them? Because we needed them. But sometimes you need the, the cover of an Olympic Games, of, you know, for a mega project to get that stuff done. I just think that's kind of political reality. It's unfortunate, but it, it's true. Um, so it, it at least kind of it was a sweetener, I think, for people in the lower mainland, for sure, to get those things to get to get to get those things built. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of the own the podium legacy, yeah, that, that would say that's it's been incredibly important It changed Canada's approach to sport completely, you know, not just on the podium, but also B210, which was the private version of that very kind of discreet but you know some private money that went to funding specific athletes and their training uh you know part of the legacy of 76 and 88 was that we didn't win a gold medal you know, in either games and the only host country did not win a gold medal on home soil and you know the truth as athletes have been saying forever is that if you want to win you got to fund you know that money translates to medals it's just true that training opportunities and uh coaching and all of the things that can be funded matter you can't just leave athletes on their own and ex with a carding system and expect them to succeed against athletes that are being way better supported than they are so you know there was there was a real shift in attitude going into vancouver to kind of you know it was going to be guaranteed win night that we you know we weren't going to go through the process that we went through in 88 where you just kind of crossed your fingers and hoped that something would happen and we're going to we're going to make it happen and and we're going to put our money not distributed evenly among all the olympians but to focus it on those that had the best chance to win which you know you can argue about whether or not that's a good thing but if you want to win medals it's the only way you win medals so that was a um yeah that that, that was that was that was a, a sea change really in terms of you know how canada prepared for an olympics how we funded sports why we funded sports uh yeah that that's you know and, and we're still again really really living in that world now that you know on the podium is you know is you know whether the recent you know uh numbers in beijing were what they were they were what they were there's a pandemic there's all kinds of other reasons but we're still living in an on the podium world in terms of amateur sport in canada and in the lead up to 2010 you actually took part in the torch relay uh what yeah. was it like to be asked to do that and what was going through your head maybe as you carried that torch in newfoundland i believe it was yeah, it was fun. You know, like there was some, like I was the one media person who actually admitted they'd done it or talked about it publicly. And I took a fair bit of flack for it. Um, you know, that I definitely wasn't the only one. And uh, there were a whole lot of people in the Globe. I was working for the Globe and Mail at that point. We were part of Bell Globe Media. 
and I was working for the consortium. So we were part of the Olympic consortium. And, you know, one of the things the globe did was had of several of our people, um, you know, the, the, what I remember for sure is Roy McGregor, but there were a bunch of other people where we're going to write about the experience of doing it. Um, so, and I, uh, you know, but I was, I guess I was foolish enough to stick my head up outside the foxhole and said, yeah, I'm doing this. And I became the guy said, well, you know, how can you possibly do that? Well, look, I, 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 you know, eyes wide open. I know what the IOC is. I know what the torch relay is. I know the Greeks didn't invent it. The Nazis invented it in 1936. I know it's a co commercial enterprise. I saw the Coca-Cola signs. I get it. Um, but what I was interested in, and Newfoundland is kind of my other home, so I got to do it in a place that's uh, important to me. I ran along with Keith Pelly, who was running the Olympic Consortium, and he also has got Newfoundland roots and came out and did it. Um, but I was most interested in kind of the people I was with who were in that little van, you know, who all got their chance and why they did it and how they felt about it. And, uh, you know, to do it in a small town uh, where everybody kind of turned out and lined the street in Pasadena, Newfoundland, um, there was, and to hand off, you know, to, to light the flame of the, a, a young woman who was sitting next to me in the bus, who was a school teacher, um, who, you know, I'm not going to get too deep into it, but had kind of a tragic story and she's, she's no longer with us. Um, but she was selected to do it and she was an amazing person and uh, her husband and her kid were there waiting for her at the end of the day. Uh, yeah, it was really moving, you know, not, you know, again, not because I necessarily buy into the whole Olympic mythology uh, that is, you know, in some ways a corporate creation, but just in the kind of the grassroots sense that I do think, you know, I think the games, you know, the athletes, always redeem the games and that they they that it matters to people and you know there was a sense of pride too there was a you know a real sense of pride local pride provincial pride national pride uh, um like i said i'm willing i'm i'm willing to go there as long as this doesn't turn toxic um and after seven years or several years of preparation the games finally arrive in, in vancouver for a few weeks is kind of the the center of, of the sporting attention across the world but they didn't get off the perfect start, right? There was the, the incident, the opening ceremony. There was the, the tragic death of, of Nomar Kermutashvili. There was the snow issue that was you know, suboptimal, shall we say. Um, and I imagine that left a lot of people kind of kind of scrambling uh, at the time. Yeah, it was, look, I was there for probably, I was I was out of, in Vancouver a lot before the games working for the consortium. So I was back and forth a few a bunch of times. And then I was out for the game. I think I was there 10 days before, before the beginning of it. And... You know, it's like I, when, the one thing I'll say, I've covered a lot of Olympics going back to Calgary in 88. And um, the mood in an Olympic city before the Olympics isn't always, you know, kind of pure, happy excitement. It's never as pure, happy excitement. There's always descending voices. There are people who are grumpy. There are people who are saying, we're going to rent out our house and leave for 17 days and make a bunch of money because we don't want to deal with the traffic and stuff. And there are people kind of waiting to say, I told you so when things go wrong. Um, you know, who for one reason or another have, you know, not been happy about the Olympics happening. And, you know, Vancouver, you had this, yeah, that all of the above, right? There was, um, you know, there were people who were, you know, didn't want the Olympics there in the first place. And we're kind of saying, look, this is going to be a mess. Look, we don't know what we're doing. We're going to embarrass ourselves. You had the tragedy at the track, which was horrible. Um, and, you know, opened up a whole bunch of questions about safety. 
Yeah, I remember the snow melting over. Uh, you know, you could you could watch the snow melting off the mountains, which was always an issue. You know, in in the given Vancouver, given the climate, um, and and then some glitches at the opening ceremonies, and uh, yeah, there was a real pile on. People were piling on, and you know, I think there's a you know there is a little bit of a Canadian tendency occasionally to say, oh look, you know, like we, you know, in Barcelona they had a great beautiful opening ceremony, but look what we did. You know, it's, that wasn't an artistic success. We don't know what we're doing. Um, you know, and you could critique you know, opening ceremonies for a million different ways. And believe me, I've done it. But yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think there was, a, there was a fair bit of negativity. There, there really was. I'm not sure nationally, you know, because I was kind of in the bubble within the city. But yeah, I could, you could certainly feel it. And uh, you, you mentioned the the I guess failure maybe to, to win a gold medal in in Calgary and in Montreal but then Canada got off to a pretty quick start with Alexandre Bilodeau winning on, on day two I believe it was and and the memorable scenes of him with his family as well uh, how important do you think it was to just get that out of the way early and, and just, just get that gold medal done yeah it was huge you know it um I, like I think a lot of us thought Jen Heil would do it on the the, the first day but uh in in women's moguls um and that didn't happen. We we're all kind of kind of wondering who's going to be the first, right? Who's who's going to be the person? We knew because you knew somebody was going to. And uh, you know, they, it wasn't like going to be like Calgary. Somebody was going to get one. They were going to get one pretty quick. But you know, Alex, you know, I think we knew a bit of his a fair bit of his story going into the games and the story about his brother Frederick and that whole you know. And it's it's kind of you know a perfect Olympic story, right? It's you know that's got all of the elements and it's. You know, it's not like the whole world are suddenly moguls skiing fans. You're, you're mostly, the, you know, most of the people, <clears throat> most of the sports in the Olympics, people are tuning in as tourists, right? They're not devotees of a lot of those sports. But you know, what is it that draws people in? It's that, it's the the you know being able to have a narrative, a human story, kind of you know who is this person and who is their family and who is the guy cheering for him at the at the finish line and and yeah, it was kind of storybook, right? That that he was the guy and. Um, and, you know, hearing, you know, seeing the flag go up and hearing the anthem for the first time in the Canadian Olympics was, I, I think that set, set the whole Olympics in motion. And, it, and, you know, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying it erased what happened before, but somebody died, right? Like, you don't erase that. Course, yeah. <laughs> but, but it did, the cloud kind of lifted right then and there. And, uh, and, and, it, and it never really came back. You mentioned, um, you know, people have love like a, a narrative, a, a feel good story, maybe, or like a, a story that they can kind of maybe relate to. Um, and I've had a few, few athletes tell me that Vancouver 2010 was maybe, uh, maybe that was maybe more prominent in Vancouver than it maybe was in Torino or, or other places before it. Um, like, for example, Christine Nesbitt, for example, told me a story of, of her, her parents being like serenaded by Canada when someone recognized her on a train, for example. Um, what do you remember about maybe the, the seas of red that we saw in Vancouver as well, and and maybe how the how the games played out away from the from the field of play? It it was um, it was it, it's like nothing I've ever experienced before, and so I was living right downtown, um, yeah, and I'm working out of the broadcast center at the convention center there. So I was right in the middle of the city, and you know, like I say, two days before the games, you wouldn't have known anything was happening aside from you know some roadblocks and and stuff like that. Um, but when it started, it just kind of popped, you know, and, and suddenly it was, um, yeah, the streets were filled with all these people who were just blissed out, 
right? They were smiling and happy and, you know, wearing the colors and, uh, it, you know, it, you know, like, like, again, sports gatherings can take, go the other way as Vancouver knows well, because of the Stanley cup riots, right. It can go sour, but it was, you know, it wasn't an angry drunken crowd or a disruptive crowd. It was just, yeah, it, it was, yeah. I'd say people were just kind of high, you know, it is, and, it, and I've never seen anything like that before. Like I, you know, there's Canada day celebrations. There's, you know, patriotic occasions in Canada, I guess, but just this kind of unabashed, open-hearted, you know, we're happy to be here. We're proud. We're having fun. Everybody loves everybody, you know, um, it's the least, you know, like I said, the least threatening crowd I've ever been in. And it just kept going and going and going. Like, again, you didn't necessarily have a sense in the middle of what was going on in the rest of the country. That, you know, only started to really dawn on us, I think, late, a little later in the games that it was everywhere. But, uh, yeah, you had to kind of surrender to it, you know? Like, you, you, it was pretty hard to be cynical about it at a certain point. It just, it, it felt kind of real. And there's a lot of happy, drunken crowds uh, I gather in Vancouver as well. Like, uh, John Montgomery, no less, walking through Worcester with the beer and, and, yeah, uh, the sort of the momentum, I guess, towards the end of the games, where Canada just kept kept going and kept going. And what do you kind of remember about that? And, and kind of the, the sort of happy, happy times just kind of kept continuing, continuing. Well, it was it was exactly that. It was it just it just kind of built right. There was nothing to undercut the story and undercut the feeling. It just everything kind of went right. And you know, not everybody won, but there were enough medals and there were enough great stories and. Um, yeah, John Montgomery with the beers, like that's kind of the perfect moment, right? It's the guys in a sport that look, no one in Canada pays attention to that sport at all. Uh, a guy like him wouldn't have been a factor. We wouldn't be a factor in that sport without on the podium. Um, and that kind of every man scene in, in Whistler with the crowd was, yeah, I think people still get emotional thinking about that. It, it was, uh, it, it, that's gonna, you know, that summed it up in a, in a, in a lot of ways. And, and it, it just, again it's like you're under a spell you were kind of everybody was kind of under a spell and i think we all like we're all working too like again i'm we're all going into an you know dark studios every day and and doing our jobs but if you were living in the city at that point you you could you couldn't help but 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 get swept away you know i was back and forth to whistler a few times obviously it was it was the same up there in a you know smaller space but uh yeah it it uh it, it just kind of swept swept up everything in its path and, and no less, of course, the Sydney Crosby Golden Goal, kind of the, the pinnacle of, of maybe Canadian sports, but especially of, of those Vancouver Olympics. Yeah, and, and, and I, you know, it's funny, like I, the piece I did at the end of the Olympics was I actually did before that happened. Um, and it was kind of like that, you know, it almost didn't have to happen. Like it was, yes, it was, it, it also played out according to script. And of course, it's Sydney Crosby, you know, scoring it, it plays out according to script. Like you, you couldn't write it better than that. But, you know, by the time, like, you know, I think there's times when it's felt like it all, it was all about hockey. And if we didn't win in hockey, what's the point of all this? We don't care about any of these other sports, hockey's hockey, 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 hockey. But, you know, I think Canada could have lost that game and it still would have the, the, the feeling about Vancouver or Whistler still would have been pretty much the same, you know, it kind of, the story had already been written then. It was just, yeah, it was a great ending. Uh, and it was a focal point, but yeah, the, the, I thought it was, the, the die was already cast by then in a lot of ways. And uh, you mentioned a couple of times, but what was it, what did it mean for you personally? You mentioned you've, you've covered Calgary 88 and you covered Vancouver 2010. Where, where does covering a home Olympics kind of rank on, on your 
list of career highlights of, of which there are many i'm sure yeah it's calgary is different that was the first one i covered i had kind of a peripheral gig with the globe you know we had a huge team in those days covering olympics and you know i was kind of writing the uh, the the other the kind of edge of the olympics column not necessarily a sports column and at that game you know, that that olympics um it didn't have the same feel. You know, part of it was that back in the day, like that's they went to 17 days with the winter games, but they hadn't added all these sports. And so it was the calendar was thin. You know, there are a lot of days in the 17 where there was nothing going on. Uh and it just kind of stretched out. Um, so it didn't have, you know, no offense to anybody in Calgary, but it wasn't the same. It just wasn't. And you know, other Olympics obviously, yeah, were highlights for me. Uh, you know, seeing Ali light the torch in Atlanta. Um you know, Barcelona in 92 was an amazing game. Lillehammer in, in, in 2004 was an amazing, uh, or 1994 was an amazing winter games in a tiny little town. So yeah, a bunch of them were great. You know, some of them were less great. Uh, but yeah, it, Vancouver was, yeah, I'm never gonna, I'll never experience anything like that again. You know, just cause it's just a, it's convergence, right? A convergence of, you know, what was going on in sports, what was going on in the country, what role I played, you know, that what my job was that year, the opportunity I had to be around it, to cover, you know, again, and cover a lot of the stuff even leading up to it. Um, you know, I, I never had that before and I'll never have it again. And uh, you mentioned the piece at the end of the 2010 games, which, which you know, I, I don't hesitate to, to say is you know, one of the greatest pieces of Canadian sports writing I've ever, I've ever seen. Well, um, thank you. <laughs> you won a Gemini award for it, of course, as well. Um, what goes into creating an essay like that alongside producers and stuff and, and be able to capture an event like that into just, you know, four minutes, I think it was. Yeah, it was like, we actually did one. I worked with Matt Dunn, who's a producer at TSN. So he was my partner on that project on both of them. And we actually did one earlier in the games that nobody remembers, <laughs> uh, but it was about the similar theme. It was about this kind of new patriotism, this kind of trying to make sense of what it was, you know, suddenly we're in this raw, raw country, you know, and, and, you know, when the Americans do that, we always kind of turned our noses up at it, right? We kind of think of them as hyper patriotic in a bad way. Uh, and yet here we were, you know, and kind of putting them, holding the mirror up in front saying, wow, is this us now? So we did one earlier in the games and it actually went over well. Um, and uh, Ken Bolden, uh, from, who's also a TSN, was the guy who encouraged me to do it. I wasn't really my gig. Like I was, working for the Olympic website and writing a little bit for the globe. So I had a writing job. I didn't have a TV job in Vancouver. And uh, so this was a one-off and uh, the first one, just, you know, could you write something and work with Matt and put some pictures to it and let's see what you can do. So we did that. And I say it went over pretty well. And then, you know, things were kind of, there was this crescendo towards the end. And I would, they said, well, look, you should go back and revisit this and see what you can do. And um, yeah, I, uh, I think we understood, I knew what the theme was. Um, actually, Nelson Millman helped me out a lot too, who was the program director at the fan in those days in Toronto I worked with, but, you know, also a guy who helped me in terms of learning how to perform, you know, a piece rather than just read it. Cause I'm not a, perf I wasn't a broadcaster. And um, yeah, we threw like, like of all the stuff done at the Olympics, like that Olympic consortium had a lot of resources and, you know, there were features that they spent, tens of thousands of dollars is probably a that is is short like they put a lot into them so what we did was like homemade tv by comparison it was just two of us and an editor um we 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 were the team um the music had a big lot to do with it you know hey rosetta i friends of mine from newfoundland and folks i've known for i'd known for a long time even then and um they actually played in vancouver that 
during the Olympics. And my wife and I went out to hear them. And, uh, and so I give her credit, Jeannie. She goes, she was, you know, when they played Red Heart, she said, you should, that's, you should use that song next time you do one of these things. So she gets full credit for Red Heart because I think it makes the piece. And it just, yeah, it all just kind of fell together, you know? Um, and I remember when it first played that night, uh, I went in and, it, you know, talked to, with Brian Williams and introduced it and they ran the piece. And uh, yeah, it's like nothing I'll, I've ever experienced. I'll never experience it again. Like I turned my phone on and just, it exploded, you know, and people in the hallways were applauding, you know, in a, in a broadcast center. Like that doesn't, you know, your colleagues, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't happen. And it just, yeah, it's kind of I, like, I couldn't explain it to you today, you know, where that all, you know, how we put it together. Cause it was just kind of, we just did it right. It wasn't, there wasn't a lot of forethought, but it just kind of hit the moment, you know, sometimes you get lucky. And uh, I think Matt and I both feel like we just, yeah, we, we just kind of caught it that day and uh, we're, you know, we're super proud of the piece and I, you know, people still talk to me about it, which is amazing. You know, I've been in this, doing this job for a long, long time. And that's the first thing that comes up still. And uh, one line in particular sticks out to me is you said, you know, we didn't need to own anything. What mattered was the occasion. What mattered was the event and what mattered was the excuse to wave the flag and sing the anthem. And I think that's kind of a theme of, the, of this podcast, but also of, of the games, as you mentioned. Uh, what, what is maybe the impact of Olympics can have on a city and a country if people really kind of buy into it? Well, look, I, I think that, look, I, I can deconstruct spectator sport completely and say it's, you know, it's meaningless, right? It's a, it's a empty spectacle. It just distracts us from our lives. It, uh, it's a platform for commercials. It's, uh, you know, it, and again, you can, take apart the leagues and you can take apart the IOC and take apart FIFA, you, you know, like break it down. You could, you can be completely cynical about it and not be wrong. Um, but I've come to believe, you know, and, and maybe sorry about the phone ringing here in my house, but we'll just ignore that. I've come to believe that, um, you know, maybe it's a way to justify the fact that I've spent my career covering or a big chunk of my career covering this stuff, that, that, that the value of sport spectator sport, is that it creates a sense of community that it it allows uh, you know I, I, it, there's the, the the opportunity to think collect or feel something collectively which you know and again this over the course of time and of course my lifetime the opportunities to do that have you know again we're all we can all connect this way but i think it's different you know i think we all kind of live in our separate little bubbles a lot of the time now and uh and i and i think the idea now, again, rallying around a flag can be a bad thing. It can be a dangerous thing. Nationalism can be a bad thing and a dangerous thing. It's, you know, as a force in the, in the, on the planet, it's mostly been negative, I would say. Um, but I think there are moments when it's good to kind of pull together as a tribe, you know, to, to say, this is us. And, you know, that can be your neighborhood. It can be your town. You know, I live in Hamilton. You know, I grew up watching the Tiger Cats. A lot of our identity was tied up in that that's the, that was the only game in town and you know we you you've that's kind of told you where you lived and you know who your neighbors were and and you know what you know maybe even you describe a set of values to it if you want to keep going so i think that matters you know i've decided that that matters i think it's a good it's it's good when you know when the raptors won a championship i think that was a good thing for the city of toronto i think it was a positive thing not you know I mean, our athletes are mercenaries and all that stuff but I think that sense of everybody kind of caring about the same thing at the same time matters. 
and you know where else do you get it now you know there's you're not going to get it in religion um you're not going to get it through politics uh you know you might get it through politics and you know some ways that are a little more toxic like the stuff we just saw in ottawa but you know where are you going to get it in a in a you know where people kind of rally around something that is essentially positive and essentially and is uplifting and it you know kind of makes you look at the people around you and shake their hand and pat them on the back or give them a hug and i know it's corny but man i, I actually believe that so that's say that that's become my justification for basically everything i do it doesn't apply to everything i do but it it allows me to at least believe that it's not all about nothing that sometimes it's about something and uh, i spoke to alexandra bill though for the story and and he he's mentioned kind of this big rise up to 2010 and then maybe a hangover after 2010 in in the years prior in, in kind of the in national sense he said like that kind of brought everyone together and then all of a sudden it was, it was just over is that something you, you kind of felt as well maybe yeah well it hasn't been the same you know um you know and in part that's you know like in terms of the olympics you, you kind of you think of the progression right it, you know it, then it went to sochi and you know there were whole kinds all kinds of reasons to feel whatever the outcome you know whatever the medal count there are all kinds of reasons to feel pretty grumpy about sochi and who staged it and why they staged it and um you know the 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 underlying doping system that they enacted right like if you're gonna you want to kind of make people you know kill their belief in the olympic games i think sochi went a long way to do that and pyeongchang which you know felt kind of distant and you know uh middle of the night for a lot of people and not the same and then this last one you know a COVID olympics um you know you can and you can factor the you can you know bring in the summer games as well like you know the COVID games last summer yeah it's not it hasn't been the same it, it it just it but i'm not sure you know even in the best of circumstances it could have been the same like that's i think that was a i think that i think vancouver was a one-off you know like i'm not sure you could replicate even if you come back to canada in four years it probably wouldn't have been the same and in recent times you know canada has had chances to maybe bid for the olympics like calgary 2026 for example which kind of fell fell at the hurdle of, of the people of Calgary voting against it, essentially. Um, maybe why do you think it fell at that, at that hurdle, and and what does it maybe meant for for those eighty legacy facilities and and things that they were maybe hoping to rejuvenate? Yeah, I, it's, I like that's a probably a you know that's a there's there's some local dynamics in Calgary that are part of that for sure. Um, you know, and it, some of that bid felt like a you know a way to get an NHL arena built for the Flames. You know, it felt like a little bit of a, a bait and switch um, from a distance anyway uh you know but it's not just there like you know you know you look at norway they you know a country where all these sports actually matter and uh more than anywhere else and you know they 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 rejected it by plebiscite the oslo games and uh you know obviously there's a there's an economic discussion to be had um and i and i think there's again there is that kind of feeling growing feeling about the ioc and doing business with them and do you really want to get in bed with these people so I, I would think all of those things crept in in Calgary. A lot of it, you know, but a lot of it when you, you know, when you know, again, when you throw it out as a plebiscite seven years in advance, a lot of it's just about money, you know, and people saying, you know, is it worth it? Is you know, is this where we should be investing our money? And it's pretty easy seven years after to say no, you know, it just is. There's all there's way more reasons to say no than to say yes. So I think all of that kind of collided in in Calgary. Uh, you know around that potential bid because uh, otherwise look it, had they made the bid they would have gotten the games 
it's it was it's it was a there's not that many countries bidding anymore for the winter games you know and certainly not many democracies bidding for the winter games because you know um so i they would have had it on a plate the same way you know if if that next vancouver bid comes together in 2030 they'll get it there's there won't be i'm not sure though i think they'll there won't be any competition at all you mentioned 2030 um the there there's kind of a recent announcement that they're they're exploring the bid and as you say they, they would be favorites I, I think to get it i think the only real competition i think would be maybe, maybe salt lake city but i'm not sure where that bid stands either um you, you do think that vancouver would be a front runner and and, and what do you think maybe a, a pre-games buildup would look like again in canada um I, I yeah i think they're a front runner i think look i i think if we're going to stage games period like let's reuse these facilities before they're too old to reuse you know like the problem again part of the issue in calgary was that you you know you almost would have had to not quite start from scratch but those legacy facilities other than the oval weren't in very good shape and you would have had to rethink it whereas you know the vancouver whistler facilities are there and they're usable you're gonna have to build an athlete's village but you know but otherwise you shouldn't really have to build much of anything you know you'd be nice if they could get that ski jump and may turn it into a 12-month facility rather than a two-month facility but you have a ski jump you have a sliding center you know those are the expensive things right you've got a hockey rink you got two hockey rinks so it i i think yeah no i think that makes it makes a lot of sense i am intrigued by this whole idea of the first nations uh that it's a first nations bid primarily um i'm not to be honest i'm still not sure i've and we've interviewed some of the folks involved in that i'm still not entirely sure what that means but um i you know i i think if if that is legitimate and again if it's not you know if it if it's not just kind of a um you know a way to like a selling point that's actually there are actually some legitimate benefit that's going to flow through to first nations communities i think that's going to help um you know, I think I think it's I think it's a smart idea if it's if it's sincere, but I can't judge from at this point whether it's actually sincere. And uh, finally, a lot of the stories around Vancouver 2010, including a lot of the ones you've mentioned here, are about you know how the games make people feel and and what the games maybe mean to people. Uh, what would hosting in 2030 maybe mean to you personally, and and would that kind of uh, should should the games come back to Canada again? Yeah, I think um, you know, I look, I think it would be. I don't know if I'll be working, but um, I, I think it would be, look, I, I would, I, I think it'd be great. And again, I'm, I, this is without me combing through the fine points of the economics or the, or the structure of the bid or any of that stuff, which, you know, there may be red flags in there that I don't know about. Uh, look, I'll tell you, I think we're going to have an interesting thing this fall when Canada plays in the men's world cup, soccer world cup for the first time since 86. And uh, I think you're going to see something, the closest thing we've seen to Vancouver 2010 there because it's a, you know, it's a national story. It's a world game. It's a, it's a stage that Canada's was on a long time ago, but in very different circumstances, you know, I think you're going to see something 2010, like in November with that world cup and with all the flag, you're going to see people driving around with Canadian flags on their cars. You're going to see people transfixed by every match. And it's a super likable team. And John Herdman is a charismatic coach. And people can are going to rally around this thing like crazy. Like I, I, I don't think it's people have fully processed what this is going to be because that's actually the biggest sporting event in the world, not the Olympics. Um, but I, you know, I think when that happens, and you know, Canada, whether Canada wins a match and advances or they don't, but just being there and being part of it and having that 
kind of big national sporting moment, I think that's going to also whet the appetite for another one. So yeah, memories of 2010, which, you know, are distant for some people already. And, you know, some people, you know, weren't alive then. And, um, but I think the people who do remember it, and then they're going to get another real, you know, injection of that stuff in, in the fall with the world cup. Yeah. I, I think people are going to crave that again, you know, and want another opportunity for it. And 2026 as well, of course, of the games. Uh, the world and then the world cup, cup here. Yeah. Which yeah. is going to be again, um, I, I think if you'd asked me two years ago what that would be, I, I think I was happy about it and excited, but I thought, you know, Canada's participation as a host would be short and sweet and kind of a token, but you know, anybody who's watched that side the last little while knows that, that this is not, that's not what we're talking about at all. That that's, that's, that's a culture change sports-wise that absolutely. So yeah, it's going to be, you know, it could be a pretty wild next 10 years. Steve, it's been it's been a pleasure to hear your your stories and your insight, and I, I look forward to seeing you lighting another cigar with the Olympic torch. And uh, it's been it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Patrick. Really enjoyed this. Thank you again to Stephen Brunt for his time and for his fantastic insight. And thank you for watching this episode. In the description below this video, I'll put a link to the story of this podcast accompanies. The written story includes interviews with several Olympic and Paralympic champions, including Alexandra Bilodeau, Christine Nesbitt, Lauren Wollstonecroft, and Aurelie Rivard, among others, as well as former Toronto Mayor David Miller and Adam Vancouverden, who is now a Milton MP, but formerly an Olympic champion, of course, in his own right. Thank you again to everyone who spoke to me for this story, and thank you for watching this company podcast episode.